In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. tell them. Why do they stare so much? I don't know. I don't like it. Also, tell them to stop staring. You got it, boss. I'm sorry. I have always found that hilarious. Every time I've read it, I can't help it. I know it's holy writ, but it just cracks me up every time that for some reason they can't stop staring and then God has to send two men, angels, to tell them stop staring and get on with whatever he told you to do. So I always have found it humorous. As a matter of fact, you'll find all throughout the uh, book of Acts, which is what we're going to study during uh, November here, uh, for the four Sundays in November, we're going to go through Acts. and. All throughout it, Luke has this really, well, it's not even quirky. It's a really pretty much straight-ahead humor all the way through, um, and he uses it. I used to think I was kind of weird until I started seeing that New Testament scholars say the exact same thing, that Luke has quite a sense of humor throughout the thing, and you just saw his first installment of that. So, um, you know, and Jesus had to put up with these guys. You know what I mean? For three years, he's putting up with these guys, and they're rather obtuse um, they just don't quite get it most of the time, or they have a bunch of assumptions. So uh, God, in this particular case, goes ahead and just says, we'll just send them down there and tell them what they need to already know and that they're going to do it again. So um, what they were thinking, what the disciples, even at this very moment, after the resurrection of Jesus, what the disciples are still thinking is that God is going to bring about this kingdom of heaven on earth and it would look political, it would look social, it would look, uh, it would look like the return of David. 
King David a thousand years earlier. They were going to kick Rome out and Israel would become this great nation and rule over the known world at that time. And that's what they were still expecting. And you see these same disciples even after the resurrection of Jesus. They've seen him bodily raised and they're standing there with him. They still think that's what's supposed to happen. They think that's the narrative. Now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says, stop staring, just go wait in Jerusalem like I told you to. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they try to wait, and they say, try, because out of their good old human nature, on full display here, they cannot wait exactly the way Jesus told them to wait. They immediately take matters into their own hands before the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they try to set up for the kingdom of Israel. I mean, if you have this scripture in front of you, like on your phone, or you have a hard copy of it, it's interesting to look at as you finish out chapter 1 here in Acts. Because uh, they, they immediately take things into their own hands, and they, they get down and they start having this good Presbyterian meeting. You know, they sit down, they say, okay, there's 11 of us, because Judas Iscariot committed suicide, and we're supposed to represent the 12 tribes of Israel because... And they call themselves overseers, not disciples, not apostles. The, the text actually says overseers, like they're going to oversee some sort of government or kingdom. That's totally in their head, right? The whole thing just sounds so middle management. And so what they do is they cast lots to try and fill in Judas's place, and it comes down to two guys, Justice and this other guy, Matthias, and the lot falls to Matthias, Okay. And they feel good about themselves, I guess. Uh, of course, just a few verses later in chapter 2, then the real thing happens. The Holy Spirit falls upon them unannounced with a huge rushing wind, tongues of fire smacking each disciple, and they begin to speak in foreign languages that others understand, but they don't. And now we're getting somewhere. This is what God and Jesus, this is what they were had in mind. It's entirely different than what the disciples thought was going to happen. Entirely different, okay? Now that they're getting somewhere, it's 50 days after Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's a holiday, by the way. We call it Pentecost in the, in the Catholic Church because it's 50, you know, Pente but, for, but it really was the festival of wheat, and it's a holiday, and all sorts of people from all over Israel and Judea and had come into Jerusalem. It's called a, a Shavuot. That's in the Hebrew. And Peter stands up in the middle of the crowd, I guess, it doesn't say, but I guess out in the street or somewhere, or maybe at the temple. And he stands up and he begins telling the people uh, that it's all going to happen just like it happened in the Old Testament, except it's going to be different. And he actually goes on and preaches out of Joel, the prophet Joel. And the entire ministry, he goes through the entire ministry of Jesus as the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom here on earth. And the people cry out after they hear Peter's sermon. They say, what shall we do? The people cry out. And here it is, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Famous verse where Peter says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is big stuff going on right here. Keep in mind, by the way, I know we tend to, just to digress for a small moment, we, we tend to think of this in our 20th century mind, that, you know, they repent and be baptized and all that, like they're becoming Christian, but they're actually all very devout Jews, and they're actually repenting of the death 
of Jesus that they did and crucified him. And they're actually becoming these, this new people of God, even though they're already the people of God. So that's what it looks like when the Holy Spirit shows up, not some Presbyterian committee meeting. And so let's see. The disciples got something right. A new kingdom was coming, and they got something wrong. The kingdom was not political. It was not geographic. It was not military. It was not ethnocentric. The new kingdom was nothing less than life-changing for each person. And the kingdom of God was going to go out over the entire earth and all sorts of people, thus the different languages being spoken by the Spirit. So soon enough then, when you get around, far from the geopolitical conquering that the disciples originally thought there in chapter 1, by the end of chapter 2 of Acts, you find a picture of exactly what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And Lakeland leverages this passage, these few passages, these verses here, all day long. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. (laughs) Saved from the old expectation of a geopolitical military victory. Instead now, The kingdom of God was inside of each person because the spirit had fallen on them. That's where the kingdom was. So what am I after this morning with this passage? It's a really simple point, and I hope to kind of pound it home. It's a very simple point. And and I just need you to participate here at this moment because here's the simple point. Humans are cotton-headed ninny-muggins. And despite their ineptitude, the Spirit of God prevails over their lives. Humans are goofy, and they are inept, and they make huge assumptions about everything. And over and over, all throughout the book of Acts, hilariously sometimes for Luke, they are surprised by the Holy Spirit fixing things. And taking them in new directions. And the point is simple. God's still doing that with you and me. The Holy Spirit moves forward despite us. So, here. Participate. Turn to your neighbor. This is probably somebody you don't know and you don't know their name. And tell them, you're a cotton-headed knitting muggins. (laughs) Go ahead. You're a cotton-headed knitting muggins. And, and And now tell them. Now tell them. It's not over. Just to keep with the spirit of X. And now... Tell them this, but God has a plan for your life. There you go. Good work, everyone. So don't share any scores. All right. uh, Even in your worst mess, you guys, the Holy Spirit is present. Even in your worst circumstances, the Holy Spirit is there. And if we pay attention, we may, we, we just may experience the presence of God's Spirit if we're even just slightly open to the Spirit of God. 
of the course, the, the lesson we see here in Luke Acts of the Apostles in chapter 1 tells us that it was really much more their fault was really much more about their assumptions about God. Then that, that's what tripped them up. So look no further than uh, where you see these assumptions happening all the time that you'll find all the way through Acts. As a matter of fact, the, the challenge, by the way, for the month of November is uh, if you need an assignment for the month would be read the book of Acts. It's fun to read because it's history. Um, and, you know, it just goes along in a good story. And if you're really curious, you could go through and log how many times the humans are all, the disciples are boneheads, and the Holy Spirit shows up and fixes their boneheadedness. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a dark humor for me, but that's okay. You, you can join me. So, but look no further about one of, the, one of the episodes here where this sort of thing happens about assumptions, that we make assumptions. That's what really messes us up. Look no further than Acts chapter 12, where Peter is thrown in prison by wicked King Herod, none other than King Herod. Um, and Acts chapter 12 says that the church prayed fervently for God to God on Peter's behalf. They're praying, they're gathering, they're up all night, they're praying for Peter. Herod is about to bring Peter out and kill him. That's what's going on, and so that's why the church is praying that Peter would be delivered. Okay? And, um, but in the middle of the night, Peter is sleeping, which is quite an incredible thing for somebody who's supposed to get killed the next morning. And he's sleeping, and the Lord sends, I assume, an angel to tap Peter on the shoulder as he slept, slept and guide him out of prison. He's delivered from prison. Very cool. Peter then walks to John's mother's house where the people are gathered praying for Peter, fervently to be, be delivered, and a maid named Rhoda, Peter knocks at the gate, and Rhoda runs out and sees that Peter is there, hears him, and she runs back into the people who are praying for Peter's deliverance and says, Peter is at the gate. He's here. And they respond in their deep spiritual core, you're out of your mind. It must be his angel. That's impossible, even though we're all gathered here praying for his deliverance. Bright, real bright here, very deeply spiritual people. Yeah, say to her, you're out of your mind, but she insists that it was so. And they said, it's his angel. Nah. Meanwhile, Peter continues knocking, and when they opened the gate, they saw him, and they were amazed. Well, no doubt they were amazed. They had no expectation, even though they were praying for his deliverance. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Is this funny to you, too? Is this like, oh, my gosh. Uh, they just assumed Peter was a goner. What kind of prayer are they praying? Cottonhead and Ninnybuggins prayers, I guess. All through the book of Acts, praying for Peter's freedom from prison while he stands at the gate, but the Holy Spirit keeps on surprising these first believers. And the Holy Spirit will keep on surprising you and me. Over and over and over. The book is called The Acts of the Apostles. It's just one story after another of thick-headed disciples being surprised by the mission of the Holy Spirit. This is a lesson to learn for us. You know, we often complain to God. Why don't you show me the way, Lord? If you just show me the way, just show me what I'm supposed to do. Should I buy this house? Should I marry that girl? What should I do? Should I change this job? Should we have another kid? You know, on and on and on. Just show me. 
Maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit has shown us the way. Maybe it's just us who need to move out under uncertainty, trusting that God's got us. And that it'll all work out. Even if it's a really, really, really bumpy road. After all, sure, we may mess it up. And I mean mess it up. According to Acts, we're going to mess it up. But isn't the Spirit of God moving in our lives? How many times, old-timer Christians, have you looked back on your life and you said, I thought, I thought it had all come to ruin. And then you say, but you know, a few years later, it all started to make sense. How many times? How many times do we have to learn this lesson over and over and over? That God is trustworthy. We often complain about it. Instead, instead, the Spirit of God moves in our lives. And like Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, famous verse, by the way, worth memorizing, all things work together for good, those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's the long, that's the long answer. <laughs> that's not the first answer. That's the one you understand after you've been through it. So how do we love God? All things work together for those who love God. How do we love God? How do we learn to love God? How do we avoid these boneheaded goof-ups like we find over and over in Acts? How do we become not like those disciples, but be become people of wisdom, people who learn to love God? How do we avoid assuming we know what God is up to? How do we learn how to overcome our own narrow thinking and see God's bigger picture? How do we look for the Spirit's guidance? How do you learn, in other words, to become a mature Christian? Well, Romans 8.28 says you learn to love God. Okay, how do we learn to love God? That's what we're going to work on. We learn to love God, God's heart, God's voice. We learn to love God through your entire lifetime. It's not something you get and then you get a sticker and you're done. Learning to love God takes an entire lifetime. It's over and over and over. When I was uh, 16, 16 years old, and I was busy destroying my life as fast as I could, I asked for some unknown reason. This is still weird to me to this day. Before Christmas, I asked my mother, my good old church-going mom, I said, could I have a little New Testament Bible. This was not a part of my daily activity. I can guarantee you that. I asked for a little New Testament Bible for Christmas, and she gave it to me. And here it is. Just a few years ago, I received this. No, it was many, many years ago. <laughs> now, I'm convinced that this nudge and my mother's obedience to God was the Holy Spirit intervening in my life. And then one cold, a couple of weeks later, one cold Monday evening in January, I fell on my knees next to my bed, and all I did was do the most basic prayer that any of us could ever pray, which is, God help me. And everything began to change, and I still to this day can't describe how that worked. The next morning, it was still different, and it just kept getting more different. And I put my little New Testament pocket 
Bible right here. Long before anybody had a smartphone fade on their pants, I had a New Testament faded spot on my jeans. And I carried it around everywhere I went. It was like it was like a very, very early smartphone that only had one very slow app. <laughs> but I didn't have to wait for cell tower signal, so uh, it worked. And I carried it everywhere I went, and I read it all the time. And I read that little New Testament over and over, and I fell in love with God as a 16-year-old. And two years later, I fell further into the hands of God when my father had a terrible stroke that left him paralyzed on one side and most of his mind gone. And my mother was slowly dying of diabetes, trying to take care of him. And the family was all busted up. And I was broke, and I was trying to stay in college. And I fell deeper in love with God. Now, don't get me wrong. I cried out, and I yelled at God a lot. I went out in the woods like three weeks later, just packed up. I kind of like the woods. Went out, made a big fire one night in the cold winter. And I don't know how long it went, but for hours, God and I, well, I had it out. What's going on? But I never thought to abandon God. I just didn't know how at that point. And I still don't know how to walk away from God. That doesn't mean I don't argue all day long with God. But I don't know how to leave God. I don't know how that would work. So I think you should learn to love God. And it will take a lifetime. Maybe, maybe you need to carry around a little New Testament Bible. I mean, sure, my cell phone, you know, has an alarm that goes off three times a day that says to pray. So that could work, too. Maybe you need to set an alarm. Even if you don't read the Bible or pray when the alarm goes off, it says like, ah, ah, God moment. I was just driving down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot about God. Maybe you need to join a small group of Christian friends and do life together. Get some friends for the journey. Maybe you need to sign up to help out down at the Hope Center for the Thanksgiving dinner and get to know some, some people down there. And maybe you'll begin to tutor a student or hang out and do other things and bring them after, after school meals down on the east side. Maybe you just need to get married and have kids. How's that for discipleship? That'll put you on your knees. Figure out how to be in love for the long haul with that other person for your life. Sing worship songs all alone outside in the woods around a fire, just you and God, and feel like a fool. Maybe, maybe you need to teach teenagers what it's like to love God and just help out with the, the youth ministry around here, help out Libby and the rest of them. Maybe you just need to sit with someone at the hospital and, and just totally resist having an answer. Maybe it's just being with them. Maybe you need to ask God for a miracle and then watch not how God reacts, but how you react. That's the lesson. Maybe you just need to memorize some scripture like Romans 8, 28. All things work together for those who love God. Maybe you just need to go in full tilt with a whole bunch of cotton-headed ninny muggins, better known as the church, and just hang out with them.
I used to carry this around and, and it taught me the scriptures and I learned to love God because of this little New Testament. And then I got bigger Bibles and now I got a whole library. But now I just carry around this life that I've been living. And that's how I fell in love with God. It's just living one day at a time. And that's how you'll learn to love God as well. And it all belongs, all the ups and downs, all the good and the bad. And the Holy Spirit uses it all and teaches us to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves. And that's the life we're on. Maybe it's time to just stop staring up at the sky and go answer the door. I imagine that one day some angels reported to God. I'm making this up, by the way. I imagine that one day some angels report to God and they said, those children of yours down there, I'd say down, down there, keep, keep making these beautiful carved marble statues of Peter and painting these beautiful paintings of those cotton-headed knitting muggins called the disciples at the Last Supper. And they keep making this art and the world thinks it's famous, oh Lord. And then God's going to say back to him, what about Rhoda? Has anybody carved her in marble or done a painting of her? And they're going to say, I'm sorry, I don't think there's any statues of Rhoda or paintings of her. Not yet, oh Lord. And God will say, too bad. She's the only one who got up and answered the door. Oh Lord. May we give our lives to you. It is an open book. What you see is what you get. You put us on this journey called life. And all we can do is stare up to you and say, how long, O Lord? Who are we supposed to be? And we turn our gaze to you. And we say, show me the way. All I can do is love you. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross and the hope of the resurrection. May we be obedient to the Holy Spirit with our lives. May we watch everything and see you live in our life. In the name of Jesus, and we all said, amen.